Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we gather different perspectives on the topic of leadership. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Ian O'Donnell MBE. Ian is the Managing Director of Real Point, based in Solihull in the West Midlands. Ian, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Great to be with you. It's um, wonderful having you with me and thank you so much for uh, joining us. And with this podcast, first and foremost, is about gathering different perspectives on leadership. But what I want to get an idea of first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you personally. I think to me, a leader is is certainly very different from a manager in that your role is to inspire people and to guide people and to encourage people to, to achieve the best for them and that therefore is the best for the the business that they might work within or the organization that they might work within. And do you think that that sort of people orientated sort of more inspirational approach is very much embodied in your own style of leadership as well? I would like to think so. You perhaps might need to ask some of my team to to (laughs) definitively get an answer on that. But um, yeah, certainly for me, I, I very much believe that a, to lead by example. So the the way that I lead is not to expect others to do things that I wouldn't want to do or don't feel are right for me, as it were. If, if I'm not prepared to do things myself, then why should I expect others? Uh, and also to, to try and share a bit of a picture of where things are going and to make sure everybody knows the full picture of everything. I, you know, I think sometimes we can be inclined to think, oh, they don't need to your team members don't need to know this or they don't need to know that. Whereas actually it's important that everybody knows everything that's going on for me. And so that, and then you can show with everybody having the full clarity of, of where everything is, you can show it. And this is the way we're going to go forward through this situation. Mm, I think um, you're absolutely right in uh, what you're saying there. And um, when we talk about um, inspirations, are there any examples of um, leaders, either people in the public eye or people who are less prominent, who've maybe been an inspiration to you throughout your career as well? Yes. Um, I think various people have shown that. Going back to school days, actually. So going uh, a couple of my teachers, in fact, within school, you get a wide variety. Um, so you get teachers who very much teach and, and, and um, form by the stick method and then there's other teachers who very much teach by inspiring and and showing the way forward and where things can go and I certainly had um, a, a chemistry teacher Mr Gott and uh, um, a, an art teacher who both very much showed me by showed me what they thought I could achieve if, by taking the, the path that they were suggesting and that very much to me is what leadership is all about. I think you named some very, very interesting examples there, both, of course, being teachers, because I think when we think of leaders, we're quite tempted to instantly think of people who are in the public eye. So say politicians, for example, sports personalities, celebrities, whereas some of the best leaders aren't necessarily people who are out there and sticking their heads above the parapet, but are just going about their business um, sort of quietly, aren't they? Absolutely. And I think, you know, so often a leader is somebody who can allow somebody to achieve more than they thought they could achieve themselves. So so often as an individual, we have our own view of what we think we're capable of and what we think is possible. And to me, a great leader is somebody who can open your eyes wider and perhaps allow you to take steps forward that you didn't think were within your capability to take. 
um, and certainly to open the doors that might otherwise be closed to you as well. Um, so I think for many of us, the leaders that give us the most opportunity are not the big names that may be mm. greatly inspirational in terms of what they've achieved, but it's actually the people that we meet day to day who allow us to achieve more than we thought possible. And do you think that we recognise that form of leadership maybe as much as we should in this country? I, I think so often we, we do have a bit of a celebrity culture mm. in this country. And sometimes it, we tend to too easily focus on big business, big organisations, the top name leaders. Um, and as you would expect as somebody who runs a smaller business, I think so often we, we don't celebrate enough the smaller, the community champions, the the, the smaller business owners who equally have inspired people to achieve things that they may otherwise not have done and often are more embedded in local communities and therefore perhaps engaging with people that the big name leaders just won't get that opportunity to engage with. Mm, I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying there, Ian. And um, I have to say one thing that at the moment with the present COVID-19 situation, that's really putting leadership um, to the test at the moment, isn't it? With businesses having to try and navigate um, this outbreak and really try and steer their businesses through it. That's really sort of putting it under scrutiny. It is, you know, just the very basics of not being able to see any of your team face to face Mm. for now over a month um, is certainly creating a different set of challenges when it comes to leading a team and perhaps some of your team being furloughed and areas like that um, certainly makes it a, a more challenging situation to lead within than we've ever had to face before. Because mm, I think it was um, a month yesterday, uh, wasn't it, that the uh, the UK lockdown uh, started um, and Boris Johnson announced uh, those measures. Um, but that did come quite late compared to uh, some measures uh, taken by other countries, didn't it? Because we saw the uh, the lockdown in Italy, for example. I think Giuseppe Conte locked the country down on the 9th of March, so some time before. Um, so in a way, uh, in the UK, we had sort of taken a little bit more of a backseat approach to initially dealing with the crisis before those measures came in. And if we take that idea away from politics and away from crisis for a second, are you the type of um, leader who likes to sort of dive in when difficulties arise and get on top of situations as quickly as possible? Or do you tend to take a little bit of a backseat, see how things develop and then take more measured action from there? Oh, interesting question. Uh, I I think The nature of being a small business and therefore being a leader of a small business is that you can respond quickly to change Mm. and therefore it's important to make the best possible use of that um, sort of lightness of foot. And so if you have a tendency to sit back, I don't think you're able to leverage the benefit of being a smaller business. And so I would say probably I do tend to say there's an opportunity here or there's a change that's needed here. Let's get on with it. And then we can adapt and and reshape it as we need to as we go through rather than sitting back for too long and therefore other people get their head of us, make those changes sooner and therefore we would fall behind. And as a small business, you can't afford to fall behind because you don't have that um, brand presence and so on that a bigger business might have. Mm. And one thing that this whole situation um, has taught um, a lot of businesses, both large and small, um, is that it's, it's been a huge learning curve, really, hasn't it? It's um, really taught businesses to sort of strike that balance between proactivity, having plans in place and the ability also to be reactive and also be able to adapt to a changing guidelines. And adaptability is um, hugely important, um, isn't it? 
Yes, and I think, you know, we, while we all know that things like disaster recovery plans and all of those sort of details are important, I don't think any of us have a disaster recovery plan quite um, ready for this situation. And so it shows the ability, the importance of building flexibility into your planning and the, the ability to prepare for something that was completely outside of what you were expecting. Uh, but also, I think it's going to be really interesting, not just as we've gone into this crisis, but also how we lead ourselves out of this crisis and how we adapt and change our business and learn lessons from the way we've adapted into this crisis that we maintain, say, other things we can do differently, change and adapt for the long term that we thought I've been able to do very quickly going into this crisis. Absolutely. I mean, it will be um, an opportunity for uh, businesses to learn and also for uh, governments to uh, learn as well, because we've seen that although there has been some approval to how the uh, the UK government especially has handled the situation so far, there has been criticism in some quarters too. And facing criticism and being sort of in the firing line for that, would you say that that is just part and parcel of being a leader, especially one as prominent as that? Yes, I mean, the, the nature of things is you're never going to please everybody and you're if you're going to react quickly to situations to a certain extent you're going to get things some things wrong as well as some things right and the importance is to adapt quickly and realize quickly when you perhaps are making mistakes and to change uh, direction quickly as needed rather than perhaps saying well we've decided we're going to do this and being slow to turn like an oil tanker I think that adaptability, as you say, there is incredibly important. But also when you get things wrong, I think it's important as well as a leader to take some accountability for that and be willing to learn from uh, your mistakes as well. Yes, absolutely. The buck stops with me. You know, I, I, I run Real Point and the buck stops with me when things go wrong, even if it was theoretically one of my teams that had made the mistake. At the end of the day, that mistake and that problem had been caused perhaps because I hadn't shown clear direction, hadn't given them all the training, whatever else it might be, whatever goes wrong within my organisation, the book stops with me and, and I have to take responsibility for that. Mm. And would you say that the experience of making mistakes and learning from them is also just an important part of developing them into a good leader as well? Because some may be afraid, and especially the younger leaders, of failing and getting things wrong. Whereas really, I mean, embracing that isn't necessarily such a negative thing. Absolutely. You know, I've learned, you learn far more from your mistakes sometimes than you learn from when things go well, because when things go well, you, you just enjoy it and, 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 it, and you just let things carry on. When things go wrong, often that's the opportunity to go, well, why did it go wrong? What could I have done differently? And learn and make changes for the future. I do think one of our challenges in this country generally is we're perhaps a little too hard on people who make mistakes. Mm. Um, and especially within business as well, we're not very good accepting failure in business. Um, whereas the reality is that, you know, it's likely that some businesses will fail. And that shouldn't mean that person then feels that they've failed altogether. That is an enormous learning opportunity for them to go on and build something even stronger and better for the future. Yeah, it's a little bit of a cultural problem, isn't it? That we maybe don't give people enough credit sometimes and we don't encourage them enough, but also that we do tend to jump on the criticism bandwagon in a way. 
Yes, and I think you know I work in the world of online marketing and social media, but yeah, social media certainly has a large part to play in this these mm. days. That um, we we get 101 people who suddenly count themselves as as experts in a situation, um, coming to bring criticism on somebody who's made a genuine mistake, or, or just things the world and the environment within which they were operating changed rapidly, and they weren't able to respond um, to that change. And, and that happens. Let's not castigate that person. Let them learn from their mistakes and and create something better for the future. Absolutely. And if we do think about the uh, the future before we do uh, wrap things up here today, um, do tell me, Ian, what you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself and for RealPoint and what you really hope to achieve in that time in navigating this uh, pandemic and then emerging from the other side. Well, a, a major crystal ball question, um, which I, I would love to be able to give a, a, a nice, strong, clear answer. I think the reality is for the next 12 months, it's going to be about continuing that ability to adapt rapidly to change. I, I think the environment within which we are going to operate business is going to be dynamic and changing for at least the next 12 months, possibly even longer than that. And the importance is for us as business leaders is to make sure our teams are um, comfortable and happy with the changes that are happening uh, and don't feel isolated or outside of that decision-making process and that we continue to adapt and change our business models the way we do business for that changing business environment um, so that we can create a sustainable future. I can certainly see where you're coming from in that this um, period will yield a change in the way that we uh, do business. And what I think would be really, really good for the listeners, actually, Ian, is if in a few months' time when we start to see those changes borne out in a way, we could maybe revisit this and have you back on the air just to see how things are playing out with that. Um, But for now, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much for listening. Really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it as well, Ian. That was um, Ian O'Donnell, MBE, Managing Director of RealPoint, speaking on April the 24th, 2020. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is not only the former Education Secretary and a former Cabinet Minister in uh, Tony Blair's Cabinet, but is also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, um, and he served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. Um, first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, of course, where he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening to that interview just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. 
uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will, in some ways, be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product, productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed and we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system we're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce and i think that will have to be sustained for some time do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the 
public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been. For, 
all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, 
adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want 
as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.